0: I was afraid when we went to live in Uish that I would roll off it. The house is, is perched on the side of a continuous slope. The farm is nine miles by road from Donegal Town. I would say it's as far into the hills, almost as far into the hills as you can go and still come to a farmhouse. Oddly enough, if you walk the nine miles or even the last four or five, the landscape is so conducive to thought that it seems like a very short distance. You're continually fascinated by what you're, by the, the country that you're walking through. But if you get a lift and go by car, you might you get an eerie feeling of going very, very far away from human habitations. And uh, I, I always noticed that in the, in the first few years we were there. Walking it, it seemed short, but when somebody gave me a lift, I immediately sensed his feeling of being taken out into some desolate, lonely place.
1: I remember Bob coming here, surely and... Uh... Uh, people thought that, uh, that he was crazy setting up uh, in a, such a remote district on, on a farm of very poor land. But uh, I would imagine that, that uh, he has got quite an amount of useful experience from it anyhow. He mightn't be much the richer, but uh, he seems to be quite happy here now.
0: They didn't try to hide their feeling that we were mad. I think they referred to us as the Mad Yanks. Uh, I suppose people didn't understand what we were doing, perhaps still don't, but um, most of of that hasn't gotten back to my ears anyway. It's tactfully kept to themselves. In this
2: particular area, as in a lot of areas of the kind, uh, people are very slow to say anything. And... They were probably waiting to see what would happen or transpire, and nothing. There was uh, no nothing wrong about them. They didn't uh, go to church or anything else. But people were used to hearing about strangers moving in from the states, and I, for one, thought it was probably. This Kennedy's idea about new frontiers, where people wanted volunteers to go and live under local conditions and to show that, to harden the race and things like that. That's what I thought. And Also, I thought perhaps that if he wanted to write or something like that, because I learned early on that he was an educated man, that he probably wanted peace and quiet to do it in. And Bob is here now and he seems to fit into the surroundings.
0: People were naturally puzzled when we came to take up farming because if, to us, living on your own piece of land seemed like a form of wealth, they, on the contrary, saw saw only the hardship, the hardships as I perhaps see them now. But I remember being so impressed when I first went up to live on the farm by the way people came up and held out their hands to shake hands and said, welcome home. That, that to me was more impressive than anything uh, because it seemed to be a way of saying that, that this was my home.
2: This lady arrived enquiring if there were any vacant houses in the area. It seems that her husband was down south on an island off Cork and she had a cold or something and she decided she would travel along the west coast. She came up via Galway I understand and she arrived here and it was she was walking, and my wife offered her something to eat. And it transpired that we learned her message, her business, and we told her about some vacant houses. We didn't know if they were for sale, and she's. We gave her some hope anyway, and she returned with her husband, and I. Uh, knew of a vacant house where they could stay and they stayed for some weeks and I also told them about a farm of land that I thought was for sale up on Miniouge. So they worked on that and they bought. eventually they bought Peter Boyle's farm. It was a, a mountain farm, typical of the whole Mount Bluestack area. used mostly for sheep farming and the house wasn't in great condition but they said they were fed up with central heating and glossy buildings and a rat race all around them and they were happy to buy it and they seemed to integrate very well with the locals they were educated people but there was nothing bombastic about them they were seemed to be nice people
3: oh I love it I um, I keep very busy uh, in some ways it's uh, the most interesting time for me because I have to do the outdoor things as well as the indoor things I have to take care of the animals and watch the sheep and, and I do go out at least once a day to look at all the sheep if they're on the hill or on the parks and at lambing time I have to watch the lambs too and um, feed the dogs, the hens, make sure the cat had the full tummy. (laughs) So uh, I'm never lonely.
0: The hard thing was not making the move from city to country. We wanted to get away from the city. We were interested in the country, and that made it easier. The hard thing was having to start with a derelict farm on the side of a hill in a wet climate and having to rebuild from scratch.
3: Every day is different, every season is different. The past week we've had warm, sunny, mild, dry weather and yesterday it got a bit uh, cloudier and colder but it was um, still fair and then today we woke up to a cover of snow but uh, that happens up here. You just take it for granted and It's hard on animals. It's hard especially on the lambs that were born in the good weather because they have to readjust to this kind of cold. It's easier when the lambs are born in the snow than they're tough from the beginning or else they die. The ones that survive are the toughest if they're born in the snow.
0: When the transaction was finally completed and the Land Commission had approved the purchase of the farm, I went back to Donegal to sign the papers It was the 22nd of June, the middle of the summer. And I remember the solicitor saying, as he gave me the key and the papers to the farm, saying, We've had two weeks of fine weather. I think you'll find it drier up there than it was the last time you were here. That day it started to rain. And it rained almost without let-up, until the following February.
3: I was very interested in uh, materials and weaving, and I knew about Donegal tweeds, and I thought I'd just come up, really not to look for a place to live, but just to go to McGee's factory and see what sort of tweeds they had. And, of course, was very much attracted to the landscape and the people and the countryside. And I uh, never have done anything about the weaving since, but I'm very glad that I did come and that we ended up here.
0: Well, the first step in sheep farming possibly the hardest step for, for a city, for a couple that were brought up in the city, was the realisation that sheep and all the animals that we were going to deal with, dogs and hens, roosters and cattle, that these animals were not, as we had thought, Unreasoning brute beasts, but that uh, that they were governed by a kind of reasoning power of their own, and that when they whatever they did was done for a reason, a reason that they knew even if we didn't, and uh, we we had to we had to make that change in our thinking. The old Donegal hill farmers tell beautiful stories that illustrate the intelligence of, of sheep, the cuteness, as they put it, of the sheep. And um, if, you, if you listen to them carefully enough, if you listen to these stories carefully enough, you begin to understand the intelligence of sheep and the, the way their minds work. I remember a beautiful story... Jimmy Burke told me about an old you he had, or as he would say, yo, that would come down the side of the hill. She would spend the night at the top of the hill and come down at the break of day. And uh, she wanted to get into his cornfield, which he had fenced off, and to reach the cornfield she had to swim around the fence. And uh, she would actually go into the to the river and swim down the river and get out and go and eat some of the corn. And then, when she'd eaten a small amount, she would swim back upstream uh, and go and climb the hill before he was out of bed. And I learned... Later, I learned two things later about the sheep, that the older sheep really are shrewder than the young sheep. They quite clearly learn. And I learned very definitely that they know the hours that I keep. And if they have any thieving to do, they'll do it while I'm still in bed and they're they're out of the way before I get up in the morning.
4: Well, I showed up and pushed a bulb in the house. And then... Uh Bob said he would buy the sheep that was out on the place. So Bob bought the whatever yours, wasn't it? And I kept whatever lucky old arms, wasn't it? So uh, they done well with Bob. And uh, he had a good crop of arms. So the uh, the first summer they were, uh, they, were, they were round giving the subsidy or passing the lambs for the subsidy. And Bob told a man in Shanbin that he never lost a lamb of the whole flock. So the man told him that there wasn't money but to tell that story.
3: One of the things that I really love is when the young lambs are born and uh, to see them ten or twelve of them around seven or eight o'clock in the evening when they've had plenty of milk and the day has been good, playing all together and they run from one end of the park to the other end of the park and then they run back again back and forth and back and forth following each other and then suddenly you'll see the yo's, the mothers who were standing around watching all this, you might see one walk in and take her her lamb away from the others as if she's saying, you know, you've played enough and You've done too much, come on, rest for a while. <laughs> a very motherly act. And then the other day I remember watching uh, one of our lambs who got separated from its mother. And it was bleating. and some of the other yo's were answering it, and it was confused to know which one was its mother, and it would go up to one yo and get gently nudged away, and then it would go up to another and get butted away, and it was, uh, it was in despair. And finally its own mother from the other end of the park answered, and it recognized its own mother's voice and the two of them faced each other, and then they ran, both of them, as fast as they could, and they met in the centre of the park, and then the the lamb immediately started to suck. You could see its little tail wagging. But it was the most beautiful reunion to see.
0: (laughs) If you ask, what are the hazards to the sheep in the mountains, I can only say that almost everything is a hazard to the sheep. And in a way, every year is a small miracle. When, when, one, when one finds a sheep living through the winter, it's almost like a small miracle because they need, they need a great deal of fodder. And up where we are, the grass only grows, really grows well for about three to four months of the year. So for a good part of the time, the sheep live on heather. They're attacked by all kinds of diseases and science is only partially effective against that. Crows, predatory crows, will attack a yo while she's giving birth to a lamb. In an incredibly shrewd way, they will sometimes peck off the tip of the lamb's tongue just as it's born. A lamb that's had its tongue pecked in that way can't suck, and so it dies. So they'll kill the lambs. The foxes will come and lift the young lambs.
5: Oh, God, die, surely. La- we had lambs left to do ourselves here. Aye. Last year and our last year. Aye. Well, I'd... you could have a young no out lamb tonight. She might have one or she might have two. And you might rise in the morning and he was gone with the fox. And hens or anything. I left a hen out here last year. Must put in a run. The come, boy. he come and he dragged the hen down there to the river and ate her in it, boy. That night. Wasn't that a good one? That's the time they were not in the Rock. They can't scent, you know. They can't scent a lamb. Or a, or a hen. Aye. They can smell them off, like scent them out. Aye. Aye. Oh, they're very cunning, the fox.
6: Aye. Well, just as we
5: came in there, Pat, you were telling us that uh, a lamb had been killed last night. Aye. He was killed there above. Killed Bob will Bob, show you the place. He was killed up there on the yester, Bob. You had twins yesterday evening. And there were one of them left last night. Mary, me had seen one of the fox. Mary, me had seen the fox on the, on the mother last night when she was going down with one of the tamers. He got when she was coming back. There were another fox there below that old buyer if I was on the road. Oh,
0: aye, aye. country is full of them. The spink is part of the folklore of the Blue Stacks. It's a, it's a terribly steep, rugged cliff. And every spink has a black look. But the spink is... Most most spinks are crisscrossed with uh, ledges of green grass. And in the spring, when grass is rare, is scarce, the sheep are attracted in onto those ledges, and they go further and further, and then they find that they can't get back. And... uh, and then a good man is needed to bring them out of it.
7: Well, they used to be caught in the sphinx, surely. The they're on hobs there and they're, they're not putting it out. If they've got to they might fall down again. Then they might get killed. That's the way they be. Oh, no. Oh, my God! I'm telling you. The sphinx is dangerous. You could gun yourself and you could be caught in. And you could fall down and you could be killed. Spink is a
0: cliff, and mm. there could be a very narrow ledge going in. Oh, why? But uh, for one thing, you'd want to have a very good head, which Khandi has. You see, another man might look down and get dizzy. <laughs> well, I don't
7: know. It's very, hard to, it's very hard to know. You want to have a good heart. Mm. It's the heart that counts. That's not the head to tell me boy, it's the heart. If you have a good heart, you, you won't come down. Whatever you have, the heart pod, you, you're away. <laughs> you're away to the bottoms.
0: Dogs are central to sheep farming. Every farmer I've talked to has talked about the problem of the really good dog. I remember one, one old farmer who, who told me about the first dog that he ever brought to the Blue Stacks. And what a wonderful dog it was. But he said he turned to killing sheep in the end. I remember he said he had five or six killed on me self, before I knew it. And they will all tell you the same thing, that it's the best dog that goes to kill the sheep. And so it's, it's, that's a kind of dilemma of the sheep farmer, that he must, he wants a good dog, but he must watch him very carefully because it's a horrible thing to have sheep killed.
1: Over the past year, I have lost something like uh, almost 40 sheep, and uh, this would, uh, I suppose, roughly come to about 800 pounds of a loss. And uh, if one had uh, profits of that kind, that would consider that they were doing quite well for a year. So, uh certainly there's something needs to be done in that uh, field.
6: Could you tell us, Kahal, just what it's like to go out and find 15 sheep dead?
1: Uh, it's a terrible experience. It's something that, that uh, one wouldn't like to see more than once in a lifetime, to see the, the sheep savaged and their throats cut, you know, and, and, and some of them still alive and, and uh, lying there helpless. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, sight to see.
6: I would imagine that people in an area like this would have a fair idea what particular dog was doing damage like that.
1: Well, uh, they can evade uh, detection for quite a while. Uh, the one that that's in the habit of doing it becomes very crafty and, and it's, qu- it's quite difficult to detect uh, them at, uh, for, for quite some time. It takes a lot of vigilance uh, to, to uh, finally detect them in some cases.
6: And what do the sheep look like? What are the signs that they have been mauled?
1: Well uh, you, get, you get the wool torn off them in some cases although the dog that's, that's expert at the job he doesn't, he doesn't do much, uh, there's not much visible sign, generally speaking you, you, you find a little hole behind the ear or, or that in the, the sheep that's, that's killed uh, uh, the only other thing is that very often the, the flock the sheep that haven't been uh, touched are very scared And they suffer in this way, and it it keeps them from thriving as well, because they they remain scared for quite some time afterward after the attack.
0: There was a time not long ago in the Blue Stacks when when uh, sheep were farmed without dogs. There are men up living up there still who were fleet-footed enough to catch to run after the sheep and catch them. So they didn't need dogs. They, could, uh, they, were, they were as fast as dogs. They could go beyond the sheep. But um, in the last 50 years, the art of training dogs has been very important. Uh, and there are men who can, can train the dogs to, uh, to do wonderful things, to understand everything they say and, and carry out commands. So the first thing I did was look for a dog. And, of course, I also bought a book on training dogs. And the book was was just full of good advice, full of a thousand things. But Jimmy Burke came along one night, and he told me, he gave me the whole training of a dog in a nutshell. But I didn't know that Jimmy had told me everything until I tried training the dog from the book and then thinking it over and trying Jimmy's way. And what Jimmy said was, here's the whole training of a dog. You take the dog at your foot when you go out after sheep and then you you hold out your right hand. He held out his right hand and he snapped his fingers and, and you say, good pup, good pup. And then you hold out your left hand, and you snap your finger, and you say, good pup, good pup. And slowly the dog, if he's going to be a good sheepdog, slowly the dog will go out first to the right, and then he'll come back behind you and go out to the left. And he'll keep doing that until he finally makes a circle around the sheep. And Jimmy said, that's the whole training of a dog. And I found out later that I could leave the book altogether, and train the dog that way.
7: If you start on a, a pup first to the first beginning and the pup runs away after one beast, and he folly on that beast and he might put him into some hole or into a burn or someplace. Well, you would folly you would follow on that pup and catch that pup and and not beat him too hard, do you see? What I used to do always was the pups, some play, some men, and they would draw a full wallop of the stick and a pup, and the pup never would turn back no more, and he wouldn't do nothing for them. I would catch the pup when he would do that, and I would beat him at the same place he put that beast down to the barn. And I would coax him then, and I would let him away again, and I would... Take out the best, and I would let the way best, and I would come way Then again, to cap him back, and then if we would try it again, to Parman on the permanent road I would follow him again, and I would do the same with it. And the next time, the next time then, we had nothing to do when he called the pup, and he would sit down right off again and he would do anything from that on.
0: At a time when there's so much discussion of economic problems, of balance of payments, it's very impressive to see men like Jimmy Kenny, for instance, of Hill, who contributes so much more to the world than he takes back from it, who sends away sheep and cattle every year and contributes so much to the balance of payments and whose own needs are so so modest that he takes back so little and uses up so little. It's very impressive to see the way of life these men have and the, the contribution they make. It's impressive, too, to realize that there are men like Jimmy Burke who would not only survive, but would, uh, in all probability, survive well, even if all the machines in the world stopped working and the rest of us would be helpless, Jimmy would go on living well.
6: Jimmy Burke, too, is an Irish speaker, one of the last Irish speakers in that area.
0: Yes, there there is a small... There is a small uh, Gaeltacht existing still on the southern fringes of the Blue Stacks. A few people left who speak Irish. I'm I'm fascinated to think that uh, the Irish they speak has been passed down from one generation to another orally through an indefinite period of time, uninterrupted by any learning from books, and must be a very pure Irish. My own efforts to learn Irish haven't gotten very far. (laughs) I seem to slide back two steps for every one I go forward, but when I listen to them speaking Irish, as I I sometimes sit and listen for hours to Irish conversations, I'm always impressed by the. The beauty of the language when they speak it.
7: While thy harms us worse such, harms us worse such as, bearing a gunny, that my shinning in dreamy canna radd, when my shyer gunny, whoa he flew whoa yalla whoa be whoes, when my slap the shadi gunny, abraham Allah be daoshing grand magum Allah, when my be shirujanta. When
0: we bought the farm first, we had a thatched buyer. We would have liked to have had a thatched house. I still still hope in the back of my mind that someday uh, the ruin of a thatched house will come on the market so that I can... uh, Restore it, but we we did have a thatched buyer, and we were very proud of that and um, there was a there was a good thatcher living not far from us, jimmy Burke and when the rushes were cut, Jimmy went to work when he when he thatched the roof with those mountain rushes. Uh, it, it, it was in perfect condition for five years. Didn't need another another thatching for five years.
1: When Bob came first, uh, he didn't seem to think that the roads were very important. He, he did all his movement on foot, and uh, roads didn't seem to be all that important to him. Uh, strangely enough, it's one of the one of the things that I know that I've noticed regarding Bob since he came. One of the changes that I've noticed that when he came, he, he, he didn't think that these amenities were very, uh, were way important at all. And uh, lately I note a change in his attitude where, uh, like, he's got a car, and uh, he was one of the people then who, who helped to agitate to, get, to have the road passing his house repaired.
0: No, we didn't have a car at all for five years. We went everywhere on foot. But we had the advantage of... Uh, we had the advantage that there was a man called Ambie Meehan who uh, provided transportation for the area. And he, I always thought of his way of transporting us as the Ambie Meehan transportation system. To me, it was, one of the, it was one of the lovely things about living in Donegal, coming from the city where we continually felt the problems created by automobile traffic, the pollution, the noise, the crowding, all the difficulties. It was wonderful to discover one man with a car and a minibus, transporting perhaps 500 people, and doing it well, doing it in a way that, uh, that no public system could have equaled. Uh, with Ambi, you had, you had many opportunities. You could, he could come and pick you up at your door and take you into town and take you back again. You had, you had the luxury of a private cab. Or you could meet him at a given place on a given day and go into town with 12 or 14 other people. And that was, that was good fun and very economical. And uh, to make it even better, if there was anybody who really couldn't afford the fare, MB was always ready to take him without charge.
8: When well, I was here, we take them in and out to town to when I uh, went on Saturdays at 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock. We'd take them home at half five, first load and the second uh, load at 7 and the third load at 8. I don't go out in the morning, Saturday night. And I have a couple of under mass every Sunday. And of course, we drive doormen. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of load of doormen from Mount Charles on Tuesdays, and we have two for the on authorities, tech schools, and stuff like that. I remember Bob arriving. So he would walk, walk his feet up. <laughs> he wasn't inclined to, to travel with transport at all and I used to drive him of course. I had a car that time. He used to have a car here as well as a bus, you know, and a bus. I had two cars and a bus.
6: What do you think of a man like Bob Burnham coming here now, and particularly the place he is there, which is way out, very isolated? Do you, do you think he's mad completely?
8: Well, he, he had to be... He had to be... Well, he's his he idea, you know, but what he went into to do it. most people were trying to get out of it. That's just about the way it is, you know. We we have now here we have a, uh, laid water you know water scheme we have it completed, light, with the dance hall with the pub chapel all around here around He's five or six miles away from all that. There's an old lake, no nothing up there, but that's what he likes. The steep repairs he doesn't want them things.
0: Well, I didn't particularly care to have a road because I like quiet, <laughs> peace and quiet. And um, I was afraid they would tar the road. The county, of course, was delighted that I was opposed to the tarring of the road. (laughs) But uh, my neighbors, Bridget McDermott McDermott and Joe McDermott, uh, persuaded me finally that uh, we did need a road that it was a poor idea not having a road. And we actually, the three of us, formed the mini Road Users Association with Joe as president. Uh, I was secretary. And uh, it was wonderful to see what a small number of people could do when they wanted to work together. And the county was very kind. They they got the idea right away, gave us the road.
3: I don't think I really miss anything. I I think probably uh, things like live music I would miss more than anything. But then the times that I do get to the city, I take advantage of that.
0: We have a radio, radio. yes,
3: and we, we do get the benefit of the BBC programmes. But as we don't have electricity, we try to keep those things to a minimum. Do and you intend um, to
6: get in the electricity? No,
3: no. I wouldn't want it at all, really. The Aladdin lamps give a very soft light and you can read for hours by them without hurting your eyes, and I find it quite adequate. And uh, the wires, the electricity in a climate like this with so much wind would make it terribly noisy. You wouldn't get that problem in the city. But uh, it would destroy the the peace, really, I think. So I'm content with the Aladdin lamps.
0: For someone who spent all his life in the city, and therefore, is never more is never further separated from his neighbor than the distance of a, of a wall, who's never more than a few yards away from many neighbors. It was a very funny feeling, being a mile from my nearest neighbor, being all alone. But and then pe- people often asked me. They said, "Aren't you terribly far out? Aren't you? Aren't you lonely out there?" Uh, and um, I think we may have felt that way at first, but later we discovered that we were living with the best of neighbors. We had the best of company, and um, and therefore we were never lonely. I remember them uh, spontaneously coming around to teach us about farming. I remember when we bought a cow, we bought a black cow with a calf, and uh, needless to say, we didn't know how to milk the cow. We had only the vaguest idea. And uh, I was quite worried about that. I knew that I knew that the cow could be ruined. She was a good cow. I knew the cow could be ruined by bad milking. And I was quite worried about having to milk her twice a day without knowing how to do it. And uh, it was in the middle of summer, and one... Very thunderstormy day, I was out in front of the house and I looked up the hill and over the shoulder I saw this farm woman coming at at a brisk pace and I recognised Hannah Burke from the other side of the hill and I said, Hannah, where are you going? And in her vigorous, robust voice she said, I'm coming to you, Bob. I know you bought a cow and you don't know how to milk. And I'm coming to show you how to milk the cow that that was that was typical of the kind of thing
1: it seems to me that that, that Bob thinks that that uh, the quality of life here is quite good, and that this can compensate for a lot of the the lack of uh, other facilities uh, He seems to like the people the few people that are left and uh, uh As far as I see, he seems to be quite happy, and if it suits him, well, then it suits suits us.
0: One thing was very difficult, and that was the organisation, organising the work. Because a city man may think that uh, farming is simple, but when I started to farm, I realised that the, the simplest farm required perfect organization. So when I started, I faced endless jobs and I tried to do them all at once, as it were. The roof was leaking. There was It was time to cut the turf. It was time to put up a fence around the meadow so we'd have hay. Soon it was time to cut and win the hay. It was time to buy the sheep. It was time to to put a ram to the sheep, and so on. All these jobs came at once. And it was only at the end of the first year when I realized that I had tried to do everything and had done very little, that I understood that there was a need for an organization of the entire, of all the work. And thinking about it, I realized... As I could only realize on a farm, that there were jobs that you did every day, and sometimes twice a day, and other jobs you might do once a week. And then there were seasonal jobs, and jobs that came, came back perhaps only once a year, and you did them once a year, like shearing the sheep. And finally, there were jobs you did for a lifetime, like building your house. And when I understood that, I I understood that I would have to start with the lifetime jobs and work down slowly, back to the annual and the seasonal and the weekly and the daily work. But I just wanted to say, there have been a lot of good things about living in Minyush, but in the end, The best thing about it has been the people, people who don't have much, perhaps, in the way of possessions and comforts and luxuries, but who don't look for much. They're quite content. They're happy with what they have. To me, very good people.